Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Oh, gracious and merciful Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for your law. Lord, as we see your law, we are quick to be able to point out where others fall short. Lord, where we see uh, their shortcomings, their sin, and Lord, it does make us cause um, to get angry, be able to uh, have this hot indignation. But we pray as we look at your law and as we see even the wicked things that happen in this world, we would understand your sovereign purpose for all of it. Lord, that we would lift up your law, to be able to see it and praise it as we sojourn in this life, that as we remember all that you have done for us, whether day or night, that we might be able to keep your words. Lord, that we would see these blessings. We would see the glorious truth of the Gospel for those lawbreakers. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now by the prayer had been given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. They laid hands on him and seized him. One of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching. and You did not seize me, but let the Scriptures be fulfilled. They all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth around his bo- about his body. And they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the high chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? He remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, 
What further witness do you need? Do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? They all condemned him as deserving death. Some began to spit on him and cover his face and strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. The guards received him with blows. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. We have seen chapter 14 as the fulfillment of what Christ has said would happen. We see the unraveling of the events that all took place as Christ told His disciples three times in the Gospel of Mark what would happen to the Son of Man. That the Son of Man must suffer many things. He would be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes. And we see as this begins to unfold, we understand this as it comes to be. We see the beginning of these events as they start to take place. We see mainly here in this section that the first half of that, that the Son of Man must suffer many things, that He would be delivered over to the priests, the chief priests and the scribes. We see this very depressing chapter. First thing that we see in this chapter is that Jesus is treated like a traitor. Jesus is treated like a traitor. Jesus, as his as he is telling his disciples that his betrayer is at hand in verse forty two, in steps Judas. Now we know of the agreement that Judas has made with the priests, the religious leaders. We know this right back from when we were introduced to Judas. We know this from earlier in the chapter, in verses 10 and 11. But again, we see Judas steps in, and Mark reminds us that the betrayer comes from within. In verse 43, Mark explains that Judas, one of the twelve, that the betrayal doesn't come from Jesus' enemies, per se, it comes from one of His own disciples. One who is close to Him. One interesting aspect as we look at the Gospel of Mark is that Judas' name is only mentioned three times when he lists the disciples, twelve disciples, earlier in chapter 14, and then again here in today's passage. Now there's another Judas, that's Jesus' brother in Mark chapter 6. But every time you see Judas' name in the Gospel of Mark, you can take your finger and go forward. And it is not long before you see the word betrayer or betray. That every time Judas is mentioned, Mark wants to remind us that he is the one who will deliver Jesus over. That here we see the last time Judas is mentioned in the Gospel of Mark. This is his life accomplishment as Mark writes about it. Judas plays a very important part. So much so that if he was to be labeled on a script, you could just put the title, The Betrayer. 
Now Mark doesn't tell us what happens to Judas. This is the last time we see him. Other books of the Bible in Matthew and Acts explains that Judas hung himself. That Judas plays one role in all of the Gospel of Mark. That one role culminates in a kiss. A kiss of betrayal, a stone-cold kiss of death. And it was custom in those days that one would go and greet one another by a kiss. That this was a sign of respect, adoration. Yet, this time, it is quite the opposite. That he had told that this is a secret sign. That the betrayer had planned to be able to show the religious leaders who they were to arrest. Now everybody knew who Jesus was. It was not hard to know who Jesus was. Yet this was the way that Judas decided to be able to hand him over to the priest. Now before we see how Jesus was treated, we need to see the strange paradox here. That Judas is the one that's handing Jesus over. He's the one delivering Jesus into the hands of the scribes. But Paul, in Ephesians 2, explains that Christ gave Himself you see Judas giving up Jesus, handing over Jesus, delivering Jesus up for Himself to be able to get those pieces of silver that was promised to Him. However, the strange paradox is that we're told that Jesus is the one who gave up Himself for us. Judas has kissed the cheek of his rabbi Judas has fulfilled the first part of the prophecy which Jesus had told His disciples that the Son of Man would be delivered over the hands of men. Now you could spend an enormous amount of time looking at the specifics of Christ's prediction that He made in those three times, formerly in Mark. But for now, we'll see specifically how they treat Him. Before we get to how they treat them, we need to be reminded of what Jesus' earthly ministry has looked like. Right from the start, there's been conflict around Jesus' ministry. But never because of criminal behavior. His ministry was predominantly of teaching, healing, casting out unclean spirits. Jesus even has give, gives examples from chapters 11 and 12, when he's teaching in the temple. And every time that he taught in the temple, when the questions were raised, or even when Jesus asked the questions back to the religious leaders, there was no cause for them to be able to seize him there and then. They wanted that. Remember, they were seeking a way to secretly try and capture him, to be able to send spies, to be able to ask him questions, that he might be able to stumble and fall about, shall we pay taxes to Caesar or not? But his answer stumped them. They didn't get what they wanted. But here, they come and seize him. 
they treat him like a criminal, like a traitor. They do so with three ways. Three ways. Firstly, we need to understand before, it's not specifically in this text, but we need to understand that this is between the time of when they celebrated the Passover, and Peter had been told, before the rooster, rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So it's all happening within night time. So this arrest is happening in the dark of night. It's done in the darkness. But verse 49 explains that day after day I've been teaching in the temple, but you did not arrest me. But they come to arrest Jesus in the secluded garden in which he is to pray. You've got to be reminded that they wanted to be able to do this for a long time. Verse 14, uh, chapter 14, verse 2 explains the religious leaders tried to be able to keep, cause, uh, arrest Jesus, to put him to death, but they were fearful of the crowds that it might cause an uproar. But what they do is they come at night. Come at night and outside the city walls. They come at night when the crowds aren't as around them. There is a crowd here that is mentioned, but it's obviously not a large crowd. They do so at night. The second thing is they come with swords and clubs. They come with an army. Now we need to note that many people and even some of the disciples thought that he had come, Jesus had come, to be able to overthrow the, the Romans. Like we've looked at before, they wanted a king like Jehu. They wanted a, a general like Judah Maccabee. Now it is true that this might be the perceptions surrounding Jesus' ministry. And even the council looks at this matter and acts Jesus is compared to Judas or Theodos, who had a large following, but after they had died, their followings died as well. They assumed Jesus and his disciples would put up a fight. Maybe rightly so, as Peter reaches for his sword and cuts off the high priest's ear. One just mild point is that it's very important how we think we perceive Jesus. Because how you think, how you perceive Jesus is how then you would respond to Jesus. How you approach Jesus. If you think Jesus is the enemy, then you're going to approach Him with swords and clubs. Rather than understanding who Jesus actually says He is. Not based on your presumptions, but based on what Jesus says He is and why He came. But they came ready for a fight. Again, we must ask why. Jesus explains they treat Him like a highway bandit. Like a robber. Like the man, man who robbed a man walking from Jerusalem to Jericho in the story of the Good Samaritan. That is what Jesus is treated like like Barabbas, who will be set free in exchange for Jesus. Yet another paradox. Barabbas, who is a robber, is set free. His crimes washed away 
in the eyes of the civil authorities, but it is Jesus who is innocent, who is treated like a robber, like a threat. The last thing that we see is how he is treated is he's seized and captured. Now we might understand their actions of caution from their wrong presumptions of Jesus' ministry. However, we have no reason to agree with those actions of caution. As you read through all the Gospels, you fail to see how many people concluded that Jesus was going to overthrow the government. But his his kingdom is about repentance. The very first thing that Jesus says that he walks out under the temptation in the wilderness is repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. That his ministry is centered on care and compassion. His message of one of forgiveness. His disciples are nobody, yet the leaders thought that it would be best to be able to bind him. Even the last verse of what we read. How did the guards treat him? Received him with blows. There's nothing written in the Scriptures that show that Jesus was hostile. That Jesus was aggressive. They seized him like the Philistines seized Samson. Samson was a mighty warrior who needed to be bound Jesus is led away under guard. That Jesus is treated like a criminal. And after he is treated like a criminal, he is tried in a corrupt courtroom. Jesus is arrested and is taken to the court straight away, standing before the men who are accusing him. Now, we do not have a perfect system of law, or maybe even we could explain that even if you did have a perfect system of law, then what you would have is still a faulty system because you would still have to have people involved in that system in law. That even if you had the perfect law system, that it would not be the perfect system because ultimately you would have men and women who would be involved in that system. For example, there's no judge who is all-knowing. One of the most important things about trying to adjudicate an act, if it's right or wrong, is to be able to know all things. You might, you know, in our house, we have many courtrooms all the time where people give their defenses. And uh, one of the hard things is you do not know the motives of the heart. You do not know if something is an accident or if something is on purpose. That's a hard thing to be able to decide what the action should be following such a thing. That One of the key pieces is knowing all the things. And even in a perfect system, you do not have an all-knowing judge. Human judgment is limited, but we're also limited on the evidence that can be provided. There's no machine you can connect to someone to be able to understand motives. Secondly, our judicial system has human components, which I mentioned before, which is one of the greatest weaknesses. Not only if, if you had a perfect ability to be able to know all things, 
Though we must understand that as, as, as perfect as that image is, that law is blind, it is hard to be able to see that fully and truly. Because you still have a person sitting in the seat. That no matter the case, every courtroom is filled with sinners, even the judge. Both sides of the aisle. But you know that the judicial system is fundamentally broken when you're not seeking justice. The outcome of any judicial system should be the foundation of justice in the end. However poorly administered, but justice. If you have a court system that is based on vengeance, then you have a far different system. And this is what we see in this chapter. This is some form of mock trial. A fake courtroom made for reality TV. You probably understand that maybe a set of Judge Judy would have more legal standing than this courtroom. That there's corruption in all that takes place. You see this even in verse 55. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put Him to death. Their motive is we want Him dead. And we will find any evidence that we think we'd be able to put forward to be able to get that outcome. But notice what Mark says, but they found none. And what do they do in verse 56? They found none. They don't close the trial. There's no evidence enough to be able to pursue this case. What do they do? They bring in false witnesses. They didn't have anyone. They had someone who would deliver them over into their hands, but no one would step up into the, the dock to be able to testify against Jesus, especially to testify Him to put Him to death. And when they did find people, their testimonies did not agree. Several times Mark makes that clear. So you see that testimonies don't agree, then one person has to be lying. Hence the false witness. Now I think there are some basic principles you should be able to apply across any cultures. Something like justice should be seen in all cultures. However, it is a stretch to be able to apply our whole judicial system to be able to then apply it to other cultures. For example, just one uh, that comes to mind is the Sixth Amendment, the right to counsel. This is a terrific right that those who live in this country have. Terrific article in the U.S. Constitution. How, but however, if you, if you said that this is a fundamental to this justice system, then it has to be in every system, then I think you might see weaknesses in that. That we could look at this and judge it by U.S. law standards and say, well, Jesus didn't have the right to counsel, so therefore it's unjust. 
Well, we might be able to argue that. That's, I don't think, what the passage explains. But I do think it's fair, especially to be able to apply the laws of the culture itself to the culture in which it lives. How do they measure up against the standards in which of that time? For example, in Deuteronomy chapter 19, I think would be an appropriate place to start. The laws about how a trial or a case would be to happen. Now, without going through it all, I encourage you maybe to go and read it in your own time. We can see from here the, the general equity thereof of the law that we might be able to unpack some of the truths of which the culture they live in and how a judicial case might be tried. We can summarize that it, a fair and a just trial would include the plurality of witnesses. But not just the plurality, not just you have a lot, but all the witnesses bear the truth of the same thing. They would then have to come and they would appear before the Lord that a court case would not just happen in the eyes of men, but God would be a part. You would have priests and judges. It was clear to be able to see this. And it was the judges who were able to inquire and they were to do so diligently. The judge is the one who is to rule on the case. The judge is to be able to inquire, to be able to ask questions, to be able to get to know the truth of the matter. But you notice something that is lacking here. There's no judges in this trial. It doesn't seem that so they're doing so before the Lord. We also notice that there's those who are bearing false witness. And one of the things in Deuteronomy chapter 19, and maybe one of the reasons why no one was willing to be able to bear testimony against Jesus to be able to have him put to death, is one of the things in the judicial system in the Levitical law was that what you would have is if you bore testimony and the consequence of that, the response of that was that the person who you're bearing testimony against would be put to death, and then you find out that you're actually lying, you're bearing false witness, then you actually get their punishment. Now that's an interesting thing to apply. Parents, maybe you should try that at home. But it was a way that, to be able to make sure that telling the truth was not merely just that you get a slap on the wrist, that you understand what you're testifying is actually true. But also in Deuteronomy chapter 19, I mentioned this before, but again, that the hearing would be done before the Lord. That also, that one of the key things in Deuteronomy is that, that they should hear the law, hear the case, as they hear it before God. And so, as they hear it before God, they should listen very carefully and fearfully that they understand that this mini courtroom, this small courtroom, would one day be before God in the full courtroom. The one of that great judgment to come. But the last thing, in the end, it was justice that was to be found. Now this is not the case with Jesus. That all, almost all of those things that are laid out in Deuteronomy chapter 19 are not to be found in this time. 
one would be able to call for a mistrial. There's no evidence. There's false witnesses. There's biased judges. And the judges aren't even present. It's just the priests. There's many more errors that flow throughout. One commentator who compares this trial to the Mishnah, which is one of the clearest documents for the Jewish leaders' teaching, stated nearly every detail of Jesus' trial violates the rules for capital cases prescribed in the Mishnah. You see here that Jesus is handed over to the chief priests and scribes. And they treat Him like a criminal. And they trial Him in this corrupt courtroom. Again, what a paradox. Christ, the judge of judges, has been judged by sinners corruptly applying the law of God to be able to get their means and their ends. The last thing that we see is condemned to execution. And when you make your own rules and apply them, you can force any outcome you want. You've ever played a game with someone, maybe a little child, and they explain the rules to you of their game they invented, and then you start to win, and oh, no, 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 I didn't explain it right. And in this corrupt courtroom, the ones leading the trial want a certain outcome to occur. They've spent years planning for this time. We've known of this since Mark chapter 3, verse 6. When the Pharisees and the Herodians got together to be able to seek to be able to destroy Jesus. Yet Jesus stands silent to fulfill Isaiah chapter 53. Finally, Jesus does open his mouth, answering the question of the great, the great, the high priest. I, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus answered and says, "I am." And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, and coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus explains that he is the fulfillment of the scriptures. We've seen this throughout the study. Mark. Did Jesus commit blasphemy? Is what they finally trial him and, and can say that he did? No. Blasphemy is false witness or slander. To put it another way, blasphemy is lying about being God or making God not what he says to be. Either you are the liar or you're calling God a liar. So one might lift something up that is normal or secular and elevates it to something that is not. That is a form of blasphemy. Or the other way is that we do not honor God as God and bring something holy or sacred to the secular. We bring God down to our level or we elevate things up to God's level. However, Jesus is not lying. Jesus' statement is true. He is the Christ. And He is the Son of the Blessed One. It is not only wrong to be claimed to be God if you are not. Every Jesus is God. However, as we've noted, many times the priests and the scribes are not interested in truth or righteousness or right or wrong. Even in this court case of justice, they've heard what they think they need to hear. 
they respond with a death sentence. Again, the paradox appears in this passage. They are the ones who are committing blasphemy. Blasphemy is not just claiming to be God. Blasphemy is also saying something that God is one of us. That God is is not who He says He is. Lying about God. You can either lie about being God or you can lie about God. And What do they do? If Jesus is God, what do they do? They treat Him like a criminal. They treat Him with contempt. They mock Him. Throughout all this passage, we see this injustice done towards Jesus. This passage filled with paradoxes. And as they arrest Jesus as a highway bandit, treat Him like a criminal. They trade Him for someone who is a robber, while also being robbers themselves. As Jesus said, that turn this house of prayer into a house den of robbers. They seek to apply the law of Jesus, to have condemned under the law. What did Christ come to do? To be able to fulfill the law. They do not try to convict Jesus of breaking the law. They are the ones, as they try to convict Him, they are the ones who are breaking the law. And lastly, they blame Christ for blasphemy, but in the end, they are the ones who are committing blasphemy. But throughout all of this, we're reminded that this was done to fulfill the Scriptures. See this in verse 49. Let the Scriptures be fulfilled. We don't have time to be able to unpack this, but maybe there's three references. This fulfills what Christ has said would happen in the three times. As He foretold of His death in Mark chapter 10. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the high priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death. It is exactly what is happening. It fills the words of Christ and also Isaiah the prophet. I encourage you to go home and read Isaiah chapter 53. What a glorious passage of, of Christ who is to come. And as we read through this chapter, the chapters in Mark, we see this is ultimately the fulfillment. One who is oppressed, afflicted, Yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb been led to the slaughter. Before his shears. Oppression and judgment was taken away for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. But also we see in Acts chapter 2, that this is a fulfillment of God's plan right from the beginning. Peter his sermon explains the men of Israel hear these words Jesus of Nazareth the man arrested to you by God attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. This is a fulfillment of God's plan. His definite plan, right from the foundations of the world. Christ would come. He would suffer many things. He would be delivered over to the hands of the chief priests and the scribes and condemned to death. And we see this fulfilled in this passage today. Let us go to Lord in prayer. O gracious Heavenly Father, we give You thanks and praise. As we see through these pages of Scripture, Lord, that Your plan, which You 
had set in motion your definite plan that was from the beginning of the age that it was coming to be. Lord, forgive us when we have treated Christ as a criminal. Lord, forgive us when we have tried to be able to measure Christ not up against Your law, but against laws that we make up in our own minds. Forgive us, Lord, when we are the ones who have blamed Christ of blasphemy, but we are the ones who are blaspheming You. Lord, help us to be able to see Your glorious plan. Even through all of this sin and the lawless men, help us to be able to see Your glorious plan coming to fulfillment. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Seven Springs Presbyterian Church began in 1874 and is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Glade Spring, Virginia. Please join us for worship on Sunday at 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. for His glory and His gospel.